I'm Interested with Mike Greenberg is presented by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Welcome back to I'm Interested. This is Greeny back with you. And this week, it is really going to be a pleasure for me to get a chance to chat with someone that I don't get to see nearly often enough anymore. And that is my longtime friend, Mike Tirico, who I would argue is as talented as any talent in our business. There is no one, I would say, is just flat out better than Mike Tirico is at, at, at sports broadcasting. Um, I have for the longest time believed that Bob Costas was the best and most talented broadcaster in sports because I thought there was nothing he couldn't do as well as anyone else could do it. And I would put Mike Tirico directly in that category. He's obviously brilliant play-by-play and brilliant as a studio host and brilliant as a talk show host. And what I will tell you about him now, though, is something that I have no, I don't think for one second he would even remember. But the last week of July of 1996, when I was working as an anchor at CLTV, Chicago Land TV, the 24-hour local cable news channel in Chicago, and hosting talk shows part-time on WSCR radio in Chicago, the all-sports talk station at the time. I was invited to come audition for a job as an anchor on ESPN, which at that time, and I suppose to this day, is sort of like being called up to the majors if you are a young and aspiring sports broadcaster. And the way it worked then was you came, they brought you out to Bristol, Connecticut. I spent the night in the Clarion Hotel, which was across the street from ESPN Studios. And then they brought me over and I spent about two hours with a producer writing up a sports cast. And then I walked onto the legendary iconic sports center set of the time. And I actually did about a 12 minute sports cast. And that was my audition. So I remember I was walking towards the sports center set. And at that time, the, the preeminent sports center anchor team of the moment was Dan Patrick and Keith Ulbrich. And I remember thinking to myself, am I going to be in Dan's chair? Am I going to be in Keith's chair? Am I going to be in Dan's chair? Am I going to be in Keith's chair? And I was nervous on a level that exceeded my level of nerves on the day of my wedding. That's how nervous I was to audition at ESPN. And when I got down to those, a little, there was a little hallway. Almost every television studio has two sets of doors. So that if you walk in the first or accidentally you can't make enough noise that it will interfere with the broadcast so when we walk through the first set of doors the red on air light is on and there was someone there who said right you have to hold on you have to wait there's some sort of breaking news and we are going live covering this breaking news and your audition will come after that this was at a time when there was no espn news or anywhere else to break news someone would literally walk down to the set of sports center and anchor their coverage. And I stood there and waited for another 10 minutes, which is the last thing in the world I needed at that point. It was like icing the kicker. I'm standing there so nervous. And then it finishes. I see the red light go off. So obviously they're done with whatever news they were doing. And then that door opens and out walks Mike Tirico. And it was Mike Tirico who had been anchoring the coverage of whatever news had broken. And the only thing in the world that could have made me feel worse than having to wait 10 extra minutes to audition for ESPN, the fulfillment of my life's ambition, was for Mike Tirico, the most talented person they have, 
to come walking out the door. So that was how I met Mike. He was very friendly. I told him that I was there to audition. He couldn't have been friendlier. And he said, well, I'll, hear you. I'll see you here sometime soon. And as it turned out, that's exactly what happened. There's no way in the world he remembers that, but I will most certainly never forget it. He's been a good friend uh, over the many years since then, 24 years since then. And again, about as talented a person as there is in our industry. And you will hear our, my interview with him in just a moment after I remind you. And with that said, it is now time for my conversation with Mike Tirico in three, two, and one. So as I bring Mike Tirico into this conversation, let me tell my favorite story about him, which is uh, an indication of just how much respect I have for his talent. So this was the NBA Finals of 2015. Mike Tirico is in Cleveland because he is broadcasting the games on ESPN Radio. Mike Golick and I are traveling to Cleveland where we are going to do Mike and Mike from the city that morning, you know, in anticipation of the game and everything else. Golick gets to Cleveland. <laughs> My flight gets delayed, 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 and finally canceled to the point that I don't make it that night. So I am rebooked on the first morning flight to Cleveland on the following day. And Mike Tirico, out of the goodness of his heart, volunteers to show up at six o'clock in the morning and host. I think what amounted to like the first two hours of the yeah. show until I would get there. So I get a 5 a.m. flight out of LaGuardia. They pick me up in a car at the airport in Cleveland. I get into the car and they're racing me over to Progressive Field, which is where we right. were doing the show from. And I on the, on the radio, on the station in Cleveland, I put the show on to listen to. And I'm listening and I'm listening to Mike Tirico hosting my show. And about 10 minutes in, I turned to the guy driving and I said, Drive faster. This guy's better than me. <laughs> Stop it. You're, you're, it too, you're, you're too good. The only it? time in my career, Torino, <laughs> I ever said that to anyone. I said, get me to the stadium. You're going to replace me. You're too, you're too funny. Didn't, didn't you guys have a big sponsorship with Progressive? And you would do that gig every, every year you'd go. Usually when the Indians had a game at what was the Jake way back when the became yes. progressive field, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I, I, rem we I remember that from there because progressive was the presenting sponsor, but at this point we're there for the finals. Right. Literally right. I'm in the car and I'm listening to you hosting the show. And I said, this is a problem. <laughs> we, 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 we always, we always would have a good laugh when I was on the show that it was Mike and Mike and Mike. We, we yes. didn't, so we didn't, we didn't have to alter the name of the show there for a little bit, but I, I, I gained a whole different respect for, for you and what you got now you have to sit there and take this i'm going to tell a story about you whole different respect for what you did every day every morning what you're doing again now back on radio with the show which i love um radio's hard you know sports talk radio is really easy because oh we're just talking right we're just talking about sports who doesn't talk about sports but you can kind of bs your way through that job if you want to do the job the right way, you've got to have not just research, but you have to be really confident in your, quote, take, your opinion on things. And when I did the radio show, so after uh, Dan Patrick leaves and goes off on his unbelievable solo career outside of ESPN, right? Before Van Pelt comes in and some others do the show with me for a little bit, and then Scott turns it into the, uh, the multimedia legend that he has become, um, <laughs> I, I, I did that show. And... I really found as a guy who did games and really researched teams and called games, I couldn't jump back out and have a hot take on the Yankees bullpen. 
I, I couldn't see it at that 10, 20,000 foot level with the confidence that you always have and, and, and do it with. And there's like a hybrid of we're journalists, but we're fans, we're reporters, we're analysts, even though we didn't play. There's this whole hybrid thing. And the right mix of talk show person can do it. I thought that's the, the one thing I would always listen to. You You were, no matter what the sport, you were kind of, kind of confident what you thought, what you said, and what you were going to feel, uh, whether it uh, worked in it with an analyst, worked with your partner, or worked with the audience. I always thought that was really cool. And I admire how you do that every day on a regular basis, TV and radio now. Thank you very much. So that's very nice of you to say. So, okay. We've got the Mutual Admiration Agreed. Society out of the way. Let's get to it. So the idea of this podcast has been, I've yeah. talked to some of the legendary voices who've covered sports over the years, and I just want to hear the story. So I've done, Vern Lundquist was our first week guest, and Ahmad Rashad had wonderful stories. Susan Waldman, <laughs> our old buddy Boomer, Chris Berman, uh, Marv Albert, and, and now Mike Tirico is with me here. So I'm going to make you do something you're going to hate, okay. which is I'm going to ask you to pick. We're going to go through the variety of sports, because you've done so many. All and right. pick, All if right. you can, the most memorable moment. Or it sure. does, I'm not going to hold you to it. Okay. Let's start yeah. with the NBA. Since our first story was NBA-related, you did the NBA on ESPN Radio and, of course, on ESPN Television for a million years. Do you have a memory, a game, a moment, a play, a player that stands out for you the most as you think back? So give you three short. LeBron, physically, when he would come past the table after taking a rebound, swooping down the side of the court, you just would feel like the wind go by you in a different way from everybody else. So when we, when we, when I was part of the ESPN, we, when we got the NBA rights, David Stern was great. He's like, look, you guys are going to have this seat right at mid court, essentially the Nicholson seats, but on the opposite side. Right. He mm -hmm. said, my owners don't like me because you could sell those for a lot of money, but I want you all to have the best seat in the house. And one of the things I charge you with is, make sure that you relay the athleticism, the power, the presence of being that close to the game in your broadcast. And I really think that helps Mike Green get into a game with bang and all that stuff. Now, most of the other broadcasters have since moved off the floor, but the network TV is still there. LeBron coming by with that fury, speed, and power sits with me forever. The game is... Miami San Antonio in the finals when Ray Allen hits the three and they win game six, force game seven, win game seven. Hubie Brown and I do that game on the radio. And the people who have the, ver the ropes, you know, the ropes that go up, you can only get inside the ropes of the trophy presentation. The rope people are right in front of us. And they were so ready to give out the trophy that night. I just remember Ray Allen, everything, looking down at the Spurs bench, their stunned disbelief. And then the rope people walking back and going, <laughs> going, well, I'll never forget that. And the game slash player is Kobe's last game. We, we had no idea, obviously, this unbelievable tragedy that happened uh, this past year was going was gonna to happen, right? Uh, the Lakers weren't very good. We didn't know how much Kobe was going to play. And he put on a 60-point display that was one of the greatest individual nights of any sport that I've ever seen. And to do it with... Hubie, um, who I worked with for 10 years and I adore, is just the best. Lisa Salters, who we both know very well, who was on Monday night with us, and she's a great friend. Ed Feibischoff was our producer. Eddie produced our games. Ken Dennis was our director. Kenny, Eddie, me, Hubie, Lisa did, I mean, 100-something games. And it was just to be there that night um, was incredible. And then 
after Kobe passed, when they re-aired that game, I, I, I knew what happened in that game. I saw it. I lived it. I sat on the edge of the bed and watched every second of it again. And it was just kind of eerie to watch. It was just incredible. That, that's an extraordinary memory. I had forgotten that you had done that game. I, I will say that Hubie, you know how oh. I feel about him because I've told oh. you a million times. I know how close you are to him. He is my favorite analyst in any sport. And I think because I grew up, and you and I grew up at the same, same. time in the same place. Yes. He was go to the Knicks in our youth. But I, but to this, though, I've always been partial to him. I feel like I learn more about basketball when he's on television than I learn from any other analyst in any other sport. I think he remains exactly that. It, I, I've been blessed to be around like a ton of good people, sports center co-anchors like you and everybody else all the analysts in all the sports. Like I got to work with Herb Street and Corso in the booth together when they did games on Thursday nights. I mean, what a thrill that was, right? We, then we were a team, me, Herbie, and Aaron Andrews. Like, you know, you work with a couple of people who are legendary in what they do, right? And we were a college football booth for a few years. Uh, but doing football, NFL with Gruden, and doing NBA with Hubie. Like, I, I love coaches. I love learning like you. I think we're kind of like, those two guys who weren't good enough athletes to be the great athletes in, in school. So we really took the cerebral part of the game to heart and appreciate it and, and admire it. And you're right. Hubie would always teach you basketball. And, and Mike, what, what was always the coolest was you could sit with Hubie and just kind of look over and go, can you tell me an Oscar Robertson story? Huh. Huh. Oscar. Huh. 71. You know, it's just like, you're like, so the man, if you think about it, he was an assistant with Chuck Daly. He and Chuck Daly were the assistants for Vic Bubis at Duke. When Duke basketball was good, then it wasn't as good, and Coach K came in, and then we know the rest, right? So Hubie was there with Chuck. He called him Charlie all the time, right? And Chuck Daly, who was known for those great suits and dressed impeccably, like Chuck would give Hubie the ties that he wore one season, the next season, because Chuck couldn't wear the ties the following year. I can't wear that tie. I wore it last year. So Hubie would wear the Chuck Daly hand-me-down ties. Just like eight, eight zillion stories like that, right? But he, then he comes to the NBA with Larry Costello in Milwaukee at the start of the 70s. And if you think about it, every basketball player who was somebody in the NBA from the 50s, where Hubie was a fan and liked basketball, on through the 60s, but then from the 70s on, he was either a coach or a broadcaster and has seen everybody – from Oscar to LeBron and Zion and beyond. Like, it's insane. It's insane. And teaching along the way. And, and, and I'm, I, we're way off, way afield here. But, Mike, it was really cool. Like, when we would do the finals, Shaq, Eric Spolstra, um, Kobe, like those guys would ask QB on the side, hey, what are you seeing? What do you think? They trusted so many people who are great in basketball, trusted Hubie's opinion on what he saw and used it either as validation or it helped them answer a question that they couldn't see readily. That's, that's the power of Hubie. And on top of that, he's the greatest person on earth. All right. So that's the NBA. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. The NFL. You just mentioned, mm -hmm. obviously, you did Monday Night Football forever. Yeah. Now you do a ton of games at NBC as well. Do you have a moment or a player or anything that stands out for you in the NFL? No doubt. And I'll, I'll, I'll keep this quick. I'll, I'll give you one side one, by the way. In our first year, 2006, uh, Monday Night Football, it's me, Kornheiser, Jaworski, uh, Theismann, 
Susie Colbert, Michelle Tafoya, two sideline reporters. That's the five of us, right? In that year, we had two games. If anybody remembers the Denny Green rant after the Bears-Cardinals Monday night game that turned into the Coors Light commercial, they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. Mm -hmm. That was a Monday night game. We do the production meeting that Saturday. Denny Green and the Cardinals played the Bears in the preseason week three. Played them even with the starters when the starters played the first half into the third quarter of the preseason games, right? So the Chicago trip that weekend, like maybe the Friday paper, I think the Friday sports section was, you know, are, are, these, are, are these the next great Bears? Are these championship-level Bears? Are we talking 85 Bears with this unbelievable defense? Denny knew the 85 Bears. He believed the 06 Bears were not the 85 Bears, although they did go on to great success, obviously. Denny, in our production meeting, and I still have the notes in my computer, Greedy, 14 years later, Denny in our production meeting, it's like, look, we played them in the preseason, and I know who, and I knew who those Bears were, and I'm just going to tell you, I, I know who these guys are. They're not the 86 Bears, the 85 Bears. They're just not. And so when we're leaving the stadium in the bus because Kornheiser didn't fly, we're in the bus going back to the hotel, and we're watching the post-game press conference, and we hear Denny Green say, they are who we thought they were. Like, we heard that from him on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And to know that that became legendary for a decade later is just something that always, always, always resonates with me. But the biggest memory is three or four, three weeks before that, week three, the third Monday Night Football game that we ever did uh, at ESPN. It's the reopening of the Superdome game, the Katrina game. Um, no, it's U2, it's Green Day, it's President Bush, it's... Uh, it's like everything. It, it, it's everything you could imagine beforehand. First responders, fans, you're sitting in there, you're looking up at the ceiling, you know, 55, 56 weeks before, there was a hole in that ceiling where you could see daylight, you could see rain. People came in there to hope that they could survive and live. And now here we were, football game. And why does it stick with me other than the moment, the Steve Gleason block punt, the whole deal? It stays with me forever because that was the day that I realized that what we do means more than just the toy shop. That was the day I realized, Greeny, that uh, sports matters in communities, in towns, in places. Like you look around the dome and there's a nun and there's a black 24-year-old guy. There's a 38-year-old musician. There's a seven-year-old kid. There's an older guy in his 60s. They're all sitting in the same section. They're all wearing Saints gear, right? And they all wanted to celebrate and the only reason that they could all come together in one place and celebrate was because of the Saints. And sports is the only thing that brings civic pride together across every box of a census form. So for me, that night, and it's one of the few pictures that I have uh, in the house of a game or an event, that night for me cemented that what we do really matters to people. And uh, it, it has a deeper meaning than just the final score and who's in first place and who's in second place. It's an extraordinary memory. It's one of the great... I agree. We were there that day as well. Mike and I doing the show that morning yeah. in America. I remember I just purely by coincidence was seated next to Robin Roberts on the flight there because Good Morning America was mm -hmm. there. I remember how big a deal that was for all of the obvious reasons. And then um, they were playing a, a, a heavily favorite Atlanta team. We all thought yes. the Blues and the Saints won the game. And it was it was an incredible night. I'll never forget that one either. I did want to ask you about Groot because – yeah. He's such a fascinating character. And, and in those days, when Mike and I would do the show from wherever you guys were, which we would on a Monday, which we would do maybe three or four times in the season, I used to love 
coming to it, you would always have that room set up. Yeah, on Sundays. You and the rest of the staff on Sundays, you'd have all the games on. Yeah. And you guys would sit and watch the games. You were always sitting on a laptop. You would always be typing notes. I remember there was no talking to Tariko because you were working. You were typing notes. Gruden is just sitting there eating a hamburger, and he's watching all the games. But he would point out, he would point at a TV I didn't even look at, and he would say, they're going to score on this play. Like, like he saw things before they happened that, that was – I found that so fascinating. It must have been incredible to work with him because he is a machine when it comes to that stuff. So you're, you're a thousand percent right. Your, re, your recall is perfect there. Mike, what was cool was, uh, you know, these opens to the game, you come out and you see Aikman and Buck. I'm, I'm, I'm Joe, he's Troy, Jim and Tony do it, Alan, Chris, and all that stuff, right? So we always would set that up. And Monday Night Football, we had, from sponsorship purpose, we had like a 12-minute 10 minutes before the game kicked off after Boomer or Stu, God rest his soul, or Susie tossed it to us for Monday Night Countdown. And the second segment for many of the Gruden years was kind of preview the game, right? With a little XO stuff. Mm-hmm. Mike, it hit every time, like every single time. What he hit on, key storyline, when this team has the ball, watch this play, teach a little football, this concept, like every time. It, he is such a student of the game. Uh, all those tapes in his office at the FFCA, the Fired Football Coaches Association, uh, place that he rented in a strip mall in Tampa, right? Uh, that he turned into his office after he got fired from the Bucks. Like he's seen most of everything that's on that table. Hey, let, let me let me show you. Uh, let me show you Jerry Rice running this route in the West Coast offense. Uh, let me show you this. Now, let me let me show you. Let me show you Spider Two Y Banana. You know, r- run by the Niners, right? Everything. And he was a student of it and could find it and could draw it up. And what I thought was really cool, like here's the here's what you need to know about John, which is a reminder to all of us that no matter how much we think we've got it professionally, we still can be educated. John won a Super Bowl, had all this offense stuff that we've heard about for years. He gets let go in Tampa. He takes out the NCAA stats. Oregon is the leading rushing team in the country. What are they doing? We watch your tape. Wow, they're doing some crazy stuff. I don't know Chip Kelly. They call him. Calls Chip Kelly. Goes out to see him. They end up striking up a friendship. But he went to learn ball. He oh he'd bring when guys we guys would get let go in the middle of the season. John would invite him in. Come down to Tampa. Come hang out. Fired football coaches association. Let's watch tape. You know we, we'd get like guest coaches voicing over when John would present tapes of, uh, Hey, this is what the bills are going to do against the chiefs. We get we, John would voice over these tapes on Thursday morning. Al grows here with me. Al, like, Al grow <laughs> like defensive genius. Al grow. Like we're getting like guest appearances by Al grow on John's video. <laughs> Al, you taught this defense. What, what are they doing here? I'm like, this is, I can't share this with anybody. This is unbelievable. Total student of the game. Like you said, with Hubie, you know, what, love to teach. Like if he could teach our production group, uh, production assistants, associate producers, producers, sideline reporters, play-by-play people. If he could teach us like the difference between an overfront and an underfront, like he felt really good. He he needed a team to coach always. We were his team, and I still reap the benefits of that to this day. Like I was on a conference call last week with Louisville football before Notre Dame, and we're talking about their defensive front. We're talking about like an over and an underfront. And the coach, you can see the coach like, you you know what that is? Oh yeah. Hey, look. 
I got my grad degree from the Gruden School, man. I'm I'm all good. I can call some West Coast plays for you. So it was uh, it was as awesome an experience as you would imagine for every day of the football season for seven years. You know, you made me think of something while you were talking there, and which I hadn't planned to ask, but I, I think it is that you you were at ESPN before I was, and for such a long time, and 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 were there for. Um, so many memorable events and, and you mentioned Stuart and, and I just yeah. it occurs to me maybe I'd, I'd love to hear when you think of Stuart is obviously I know how close of friends you guys were I would see it I remember I one time I played golf with the two of you both uh, <laughs> and, and but, but um, when you think of Stuart is is there a, a moment that you think of when you think of him he loved the NBA finals he loved the NBA Finals, the whole scene before, during, after the game. He loved that role. He 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 would shine in that role. Play you get that's where you could see how much the players loved him. You know, he's a generational talent because uh, it, it became really cool to be, um, in a different way, respected by and friendly with the sportscaster. You know, uh, he just had that natural coolness about him, that uh, respect for for uh, athletes that came through the TV and that joy of the game. And, you know, I think of, <clears throat> I think of Stuart, I think of uh, when ESPN two went on the air and Oberman was there, but Susie, Stu, Deb Placey, uh, the, the, that group of people, Kenny Maine, who got ESPN two going, like the, the young group, Keith was the name who came over, but that young group, that young core of like brilliantly talented people. And what, what a, what a good group. And that's where I got to know them because I was younger, closer in age to them than I was most of the sports center group at that point. And um, Stuart was just, he had his own style. I'm like, man, this, I don't know if this is going to work. And he was so convicted to his style um, and he wouldn't change. And I love that about him. I, I, I learned a lot about that kind of be you mentality, be who you are. And um, we had talks about that. And I, I totally respected him because I thought that was really tough. I thought it may, I, I thought at an earlier point that it could have hurt him from becoming what he became like a real superstar in the industry. And it was because of that, that he became a superstar. And I always had this ridiculous appreciation for that. And then the, just the class with which he handled everything uh, towards the end. We, we did a playoff game in Charlotte on a Saturday and on Sunday morning, we were all in the car going back to like a 6 a.m. flight, and we found out that Stewart had passed. And uh, Susie and Lisa Salters, all, all of us really close with Stewart, um, shared the text message in the news. And uh, that was just like, that was just, you know, I remember that morning, it was like January 5th, I think, that morning, we were watching Hannah on the air give the news and just break down. And it was just, uh, it was, it was family. The, the, the coolest thing, Mike, and, and we'll all go through this the rest of our lives. We're all kind of family, you know, um, you know me, you, Golick, Susie, Boomer, Dan Patrick, Chris Myers, Linda Cohn, Ravi, like, like all of us who, you know, blessed to have these like 25, 30 year careers in this business that we all dreamed of being in. We're all there at the same time. You know, and like you know, the, the 2 a.m., 11 p.m. sports center on a weekend, it was like, you know, any one of us would be together, right? And um, when you went in there with Stu, and you know this, it was a blast. It was like cool. It was energy. It was fun. And um, that bond is uh, is something that I'll cherish forever. And um, yeah, you just, you just took me right to a place where you just kind of can, as soon as I think of Stuart, you feel sad, but then you smile 
because his smile and his loud voice was just like that thing that sticks with you forever. It really does. I remember so vividly when I first got to ESPN, we would all work in that just upstairs where all of our, like no one had an office. Exactly. So was, I mean, the biggest stars in the place, Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick are just working in, in, in cubicles. The cubes, and yeah. And Stuart Scott was so loud. He was, yes, <laughs> yes, was yes, mind. Yes. And he was constantly talking, yelling, singing songs, whatever it was. There was always a great deal of noise coming from where he was sitting. And he loved cereal. <laughs> Stuart Scott loved cereal, like a big box of cereal back in his cube. And he liked like, mixing different cereals. He'd have cereal at three in the afternoon, at 10 at night. He, he loved cereal for, for whatever reason. Like, it's so stupid, the things that stick out when you remember that. But yeah, those were uh, amazing days. Uh, he, he was he was something oh. else. All right, let's do two more sports yes. while I'm okay. happy. Uh, you were now doing the Olympics, which is, I mean, what can I say? I'm so happy for you and so, um, and what can you say? It, it's the pinnacle. I mean, even if the Olympics, it's it's such a different um, thing than, than the more traditional sports, but I, I think it is considered yes. by everyone. The, the Olympics and the Super Bowl is sort of the pinnacle of the sports broadcasting business. And now as the host of that, what can I say? It's phenomenal. What, what, do you have a moment yet or, or just yeah. any thought on the Olympics? I've got, I've got, I've only done two, you know, so I was one of the daytime hosts in 2016 with Rebecca Lowe and Al Michaels hosting from the beach at, uh, in Rio de Janeiro, where I could stand on the beach at four o'clock in the middle of a summer day in Rio with this set of people sunbathing all around us. Right. And, and I'd stand there with Al and kind of do a handoff with Al. Like, what do you want to talk about Al? And it's like, it's Al Michaels. You know, it's like, like, uh, why don't we talk about uh, LA 1984? Okay, great. Sure. You know, it was just like the coolest thing. So that I'll never forget that. But the, the one moment was the opening ceremony in Pyeongchang in South Korea in 2018, because as non-rights holders to the Olympics, as you know, at ESPN, it's, you, you were limited in the amount of highlights you could show. So it was almost like the Olympics were, yeah, okay, the Olympics are going on down on NBC and here's a little quick highlight, but let's come back to baseball in the summer, you know, and in the winter is like, okay, that's great. Well, we've, we've got, we've got Duke, North Carolina state coming up tonight on ESPN. Like forget, forget Lindsey Vaughn skiing for a gold medal, you know? So it didn't have that same embrace that we did with the other sports because it felt like we were kind of kept out of it. Right. So I always thought that, that everyone at NBC was into the whole Olympic spirit more than it really existed. And I found once I got to Rio that I was so wrong. The, the Olympics are this most incredible collection of people from all over the planet. It's so dang cool to walk in the, uh, the International Broadcast Center and you walk down the hall and here's the guy doing a primetime show in Tokyo. And here's the lady who's doing the afternoon show on uh, CBC in Canada. And we're all in like different studios as you're walking down. You go, that's just so cool. Right? But the opening ceremony, we're in South Korea. And I'm hosting with Katie Couric. And, and I'm also at this point, I'm like, hi, I'm Mike Tirico. And with me is Katie Couric. Are you kidding me? It's Katie Couric. It's crazy. And we're doing the ceremony. And here comes a unified Korean team with North and South Korea coming in together. In any of the 47 months before that Olympics, and in any of the 20 some odd months since, a North Korean walking around South Korea would not happen. There would be police, they'd be detained. Two countries don't get along. Their leaders barely speak. Diplomatic relations are minimal at best. But yet here they were brought together by one thing and one thing only. 
the power of the Olympics. And I mentioned it about New Orleans and the Super Bowl, the Superdome and the night after Katrina, like that reminder that sports really does have an incredible purpose in life beyond the score. Like it brought two countries that essentially are bordered and have nuclear weapons pointed in their direction, or certainly weapons pointed at each other at all times and are on heightened state alert. And there's a demilitarized zone to cross from one country to the other. And here they were walking in together behind one unified Korean flag at the Olympics. That's the power of the Olympics. And at that moment, it kind of hit me like, man, this, this, this is not just uh, some wrap it in the flag and sell it to America thing. This is real and it's unified. And Mike, I, I hold out hope in the coronavirus world that we'll have something resembling a normal Olympics in 2021. And if so, with all the world has gone through, uh, the opening ceremony might be one of the most powerful moments in our memory. If we all can see the world come back together after what's happened and the millions of people have been impacted by this around the world. Um, it's not going to happen in an NFL game or you know, the NCAA Final Four, but it would bring the world together in the Olympics. And that just kind of tells you right there what the Olympics have come to mean now in my world. For sure. Listen, I hope against hope for all of those reasons and many others that you're able to do it and that they, the world is able to come together and do it. All right, final thought, and I yes. so appreciate this. You've done everything. I mean, we, and, and we've just scratched the surface. Is there anything in sports broadcasting, any event, anything like that, that you've never done that you would like to, that you hope to at some point that you have never had the chance to do? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's not high diving. It's, it's called a Super Bowl. you know, uh, it, you hope at some point you get the chance to, you realize how few people have done it, even host the main Super Bowl pregame show. Um, you know, one, one of those two things, because a, a little known fact that I was, I was born just about 32 days before the first Super Bowl, 33 days to be precise. So I feel like I'm a Super Bowl generation kid. Like the, the number of Super Bowls, I always know my age. You know, I can always remember what, what year was that Super Bowl? Like Trey Wingo, who we work with, has this ridiculous ability to give you the score of any Super Bowl on a moment's notice. I can give you the year because of, because of my age, right? Um, it's just the biggest day in America. Not, not, the, not the biggest day in American sports. It's the biggest day in America. So, so the one Super Bowl in the last, I don't know, 20-some-odd years that I had not been there for the game, or at least in the city for the game, was the Super Bowl played at MetLife Stadium. I did something Sunday morning, a corporate thing, and I flew back home. It was cold. I, I didn't want to sit there. I, 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 for whatever reason, I didn't want to go, so I didn't go. So I came back home. So the first drive, there's a, it's a Fox game. First drive, there's a challenge, right? So they play the Fox injury music going to break right, for the challenge, right? And it's Aikman and Buck. And it was a Peyton Manning something, right? So I want to see what happened on the play. So now this is one of the first times I've been to a Super Bowl with my family, but it's the first time watching the Super Bowl on TV with my family. And I pick up the remote and I go back. I want to see, you know, what, what whoever is going to look at under the hood, right? I, I've never been yelled at by my family. No, <laughs> what are you doing? What, what? Like, I just want to see if his knee was down. The commercials. They're all in for the commercials. Like, oh, yeah. Do I have to go downstairs and watch this if I want to go back and watch a play? Yes, you do. I don't <laughs> care. I don't care if you're involved. I don't care if you call Monday Night Football. Like, don't get in the way of the Super Bowl commercials. And it just serves as a reminder that 
it's the biggest single day event in America, in a country that's more fractured and polarized than ever before. Like Super Bowl can bring us all to the same place at the same time, looking for a great game, right? Um, so to be in one of those roles that I've done, you know, hundreds of times, call games or host a broadcast, to do that for the Super Bowl, um, that would that would certainly be the one thing that I look forward to doing. And you know, hopefully somewhere down the line with the Super Bowls coming up at NBC, they'll have a chance to to do one of those roles and uh, kind of check that box. But if not, it's been a pretty dang good run, no matter what, between uh, between the beginning and where we are right now. Listen, I, I, that's not what I was expecting you to say, because that one almost feels like a foregone conclusion to me. Now, it's not up, it's not up to me. Obviously, and I don't want to start a whole thing yeah. here. I was expecting, I don't know, so Kentucky Derby. I mean, you've done everything. Yeah. So, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know what you haven't done. The when Masters, I, when the I went to the, yeah. yeah. Well, well, the Masters, doing the Thursday, Friday, I got to host yeah. the coverage there. Yeah. And then last year when Tiger wins, Bob Papa, who does an amazing job doing it on Westwood One, calling the radio, Bob Papa has a conflict with a college golf tournament in California. So Westwood One needs somebody to call the Masters. So I was there for Golf Channel studio shows. Is, well, can you call the, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. So I ended up calling radio for four days of the Masters. So I have the radio call of Tiger's putt on 18 to win the Masters. And mm-hmm. as opposed to being in Butler Cabin, you're about 30 feet away. So it is truly the you know, stereotypical, Tiger has this for birdie. You're whispering very, very softly because Tiger's right over there. I can hear you. So you're whispering through the whole deal. And it was, uh, it was so cool to be there. So yeah, I know. So I got to check that box and all the others that it, it would, it would be, it would certainly be the, uh, the Super Bowl for sure. Tiger winning the masters last year as, as big as what, like what, what was bigger than I, I, I <sighs> as big as anything I can think of in forever. Yes. Yeah, I mean, as big as Tiger winning the Masters in 97. That, that's one of the fun conversations we've had. Which was bigger, 97 or that one? And uh, I think that's one you could just sit at the bar and you could you can empty a keg and not come to uh, a definitive answer on that because everybody's got their opinion. I can go back and forth because 97 was at Jim Nance at the best line. That was truly a win for the ages for so many reasons, societal and golf and the margin of victory and all that and his age. But then after everything he'd been through, I mean, he didn't think he'd play again, let alone compete, let alone win the Masters again. I mean, it just, it's just, insa- it's insane when you go back and look at everything that happened to think that he'd have a chance to win, and he did. Uh, if you think about it in the other sports, it's hard. Like, what's the best basketball thing you've seen in your life? What's the best hockey? What's the best football? It's hard, hard to top what Tiger did, really hard. So it's probably right there. I agree with Here's that. Here's what I'm going to do. The next season of this podcast is going to be nothing but Tariko interviews because <laughs> we, have just, we have just scratched the surface. Uh, and next time, I'm just going to do 10 installments of my <laughs> My friend, I can't thank you enough for this. Your stories, your recall are extraordinary. You know how much I appreciate it and how much I admire your work. So thank you, my friend. And I hope I see you soon. Yeah, same here. I went, When you're on, I feel like, okay, I know what's going on. And it's somebody who thinks kind of the same way I do and really relates to everybody. And he's truly a fan of sports still. And I have such an appreciation for what you've done and the friendship that uh, we've been able to share over the years is, uh, is really cool and one that I cherish. And I, I think because we both 
grew up as Jets fans. Mm -hmm. There's something about your ridiculous mind that I have a deep appreciation for. Yes, and a, I, I enjoy your pessimism. pain. It's a misery yes. loves company <laughs> yes. slash pessimism that we, will, that we cannot escape and, and uh, has never been worse than it is. Right and, I, and I like to treat it like an allergy. I outgrew it. I, 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 th th thank goodness somebody came down and said, okay, you're going to cover the NFL, so you have to be team agnostic. You can't root for a team. Although I do tell my son since we moved to Michigan and he's become a Lions fan, I'm like, no, I do know how you feel. Mm -hmm. I grew up a Jets fan. Mm -hmm. I, I do know how you feel. I said, one day, one day in some far off universe, the Jets and the Lions will play in the Super Bowl and it'll be the greatest thing anybody's ever seen. So you can I don't know always why you're hope that. to your child in that way, Mike. <laughs> I love it. Too good. All right, my friend. Thanks a million. Thanks, be Mike. well. I'll see you soon. Yeah, keep it up, buddy. All the best. All right, and so again, my thanks to Mike Tirico for taking this time during what is an extraordinarily busy schedule to spend with me and spend with you. And so as always, I will ask you this one favor. If you like these sort of long-form interviews and you would like to see this podcast continue, there's three ways you can show me that you do so. You would subscribe to the podcast and then give us a rating and a review. If you do so, I will see them, and that will be your indication to me that you would like this to continue. We have a few more weeks left. In this season, I'd like to continue doing it. Uh, and if you subscribe and rate and review this podcast, then that will give me the encouragement that there is an audience out there for these sort of long form interviews. And we will dream up a different set of people to interview for a new season of long form conversation. So for this week, again, I would ask you to subscribe and rate and review this podcast. I very much appreciate you spending this time with me. I'll see you next week. I'm Mike Greenberg, and there's no question about it. I'm interested.